4, Colossians 2. Uh, my voice has been more or less, well, very off for the past few days. Uh, so if I sound rough, I apologize. I'm going to try to keep my voice a little softer than normal to try to get me through the whole service. Um, I'll do my best because it's hard not to get animated and start talking at my normal volume. Um, but we're in Colossians 2, uh, starting in verse 13. Uh, now, if you all remember last week, I hurt not only my own brain, but I think I hurt most of y'all's as well with that deep dive into verse 11 and 12. So we're not going to recap all of that. Um, what we're going to recap is what was the big picture, big idea of verses 11 and 12? What was the purpose of 11 and 12? Without deep diving into all the specifics and different views we talked about. Union with Christ. A Christ, all that, the big picture, Christ has united himself to us. And therefore, uh, that brings about our salvation, our resurrection, our future hope of glory, everything is tied back to that being united and connected together with Jesus Christ. So that's the big picture of 11 and 12. Now, what got us to that statement starting in verse 8? What was it that led to that statement of our union with Christ? Right, so there's some kind of false teaching, whether there's something actively going on in the church or whether Paul is guarding against possible things or common false views at the time. We're not really sure because he, he covers all the descriptions he uses, and we're going to see this more as we go on in the rest of the verses this morning, that it covers a lot of different things. So it's hard to know exactly what he's addressing specifically or if he's trying to be vague on purpose, so it covers a lot. We're not really sure. But it's that discussion of don't be taken captive by these things. And then you could say, because 11 and 12, you're united to Christ. You're not united to those things, you're united to Christ. And now we're kind of coming back and delving more into that union with Christ in 13 through 15, uh, really 13 and 14. Uh, but some very, very rich statements in 13 and 14 about our salvation, how it was accomplished, uh, and the spiritual realities behind it. So if someone would be willing, let's just get 13 through 15 in front of us. So if someone could read that, please. All right. Thank you, Dave. Now, while I'm saying a few things, would one person just raise your hand and be willing to go to Ephesians 2? Okay. We go to Ephesians 2, and it'll be verse 1 and verse 5. Um, but wait before you read it. Just go ahead and get there. Uh, so what's being described in verse 13? Is this a new idea? Is it building on 11 and 12? Um, how does it relate to those verses that came before it? Yeah, yeah, that's good. I like that. Anything else? Yeah, and so it's not that it's exactly the same statements being made again. It's definitely not. But it's kind of the same idea being worded differently. And we're almost seeing a repeat of this. It, it's the more, uh, before it was not too specific. Like it's hard, well, what does he mean by baptism? What does he mean by circumcision? What's really going on here? Well, 13 and 14, it's like stated, but much more simply directly to you. This is how it's applying to you. Uh, that application word was good that Carol used. This is the connection. If you didn't get 11 through 12, 13 through 14 explains it well. Lee, if you could go ahead and read Ephesians 2, 1, and 5. All right, so you see very similar concept going on here. So what's the big picture concept we're talking about? Salvation, right. 
how you've been justified, essentially. That's really the big picture of what's going on here. So 13, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your uh, flesh. So how were you dead? What does it mean that you were dead? What sort of death is Paul referring to? Spiritual, yeah. Now, what about your body? Is that completely disconnected from this idea? I think you're right. I think that's the primary answer, but I don't think it's the entire answer. Right. Right. So physically and spiritually, we are dead or we are dying physically, however you want to say that. Uh, But we're definitely not living forever in our bodies the way they are now. Uh, And so you were dead in both body and in soul. You were hopeless. You were beyond hope on your own. Uh, And that's what that going back to the circumcision, we kind of help see that define more. What was it talking about? It's talking about how you were dead. So if you want to connect that back to 11 and 12, you can plug that in and that helps expand on that. But then what happened? Right, and alive with whom? Yes, right. So you were dead, and the only way you could go from dead to being alive is by being connected to, by being made alive together with Christ. So think about the life of Christ and his atoning work, his life, death, and resurrection. So we're talking about his resurrection state. Just as he rose from the grave... So you rose spiritually with him when he rose from the grave. Um, Just as your sin was put down when he went to the cross, so you're raised up when he rises again. And you see the result or the the means by which you were raised. I'm not sure means is the right word. The, The last part of 13. You didn't deserve to be raised, right? So what had to happen? Forgiveness, right. You have a debt that has to be paid. And that's what 14 expands upon as well. And it's also something that's going to follow all the way through the rest of this chapter is this idea of legal debt is going to hang around in these conversations. Uh, So that's going to be a big idea. So we're forgiven all our trespasses. There's a debt in uh, 14 that has been a record of debt that stood against us has been canceled. Notice also that it's with its legal demands. So what is the debt and what is the legal demand of that debt? So death is the legal demand. Death for sin. I think you're right. Yeah. Other thoughts on that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. And it gets rid of what, what's a common idea in the world, even in the Christian world in a lot of places, um, about how it is that we're saved. By works? Okay, yeah, that's one option. Or just that when God forgives you your sin, what is he really doing according to some people? I'm not sure how to lead you all in this question. But wanna... It's a bad question. Um, a lot of people think that God just lets it go at that point. If you really get rid of the atonement and what Christ has done on the cross, then forgiveness in somebody's mind, well, it can only be that God just forgave. He just said, okay, that's all right. We'll move on. But that's not what we're talking about here. There is a definite legal debt that requires payment, but this is what was set aside being nailed to the cross. Um, And so as I draw something on the board, then what happens in 15? What's the other result of this nailing it to the cross in 15, Christ's victory? 
He triumphed, yes. Triumphed over what? Sin. Sin and death, good. What else? There's more. Rulers and authorities. So what's included in that? False teaching? Yeah, I think so, actually. I think it does fall under that, and we'll see that in the coming verses. Satan and his minions, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So with the full picture in front of us of these verses, uh, the big picture concepts, um, let's just think more about this exchange that takes place. So Christ, in his life, remember XP, is that's from Greek, hero, that's hero, first two letters in Jesus' name. Um, so Christ, uh, in his person, he has perfection. All right, there's no flaw in him personally. He is perfection itself. And also, he's innocent. So not only is his being perfect, it's not affected by the fall, um, he has done good works in perfection. That's more what I'm getting at here. His perfect life. So his good works, his perfect life, perfection. Innocence. He's not affected by the fall in terms of having a guilty uh, sin nature, a fallen sin nature. He is both innocent in the fact that he has never sinned, and he is perfect in that he has gone above and beyond that and lived a, a, a meritorious life, if you want to say that, a perfect life of good works. But then there's us. And we have, well, we are sinners, and we have a legal debt. So in every way, we're deserving of punishment because we can't be perfect and we can't do good works to earn our way to glory. So really what we're talking about is the covenant of works here. So think covenant of works first. So under the covenant of works, Christ is perfect, and he did good works to fulfill the covenant of works. Did you? No, you have automatically failed to fulfill the covenant of works. And that's why you're a sinner. And because of that, there's a judgment that there's a legal debt that must be paid. Now, what do these verses say happens? I mean, this is just the atonement, big picture. The debt is canceled. How? Did God just forget it? Jesus paid, right. He paid, it was paid for, what's the exact phrase? It was set aside, nailing it to the cross. So your sin is imputed to Christ. Your legal debt is imputed to Christ. He takes on both of those things in his death on the cross. And at the cross, they are satisfied. The wrath of God, the punishment of God against those things is satisfied. But is that the end of the story? What else happens? Right. And so you have this uh, imputation that takes place. Christ's righteousness, both in his perfect being and his good works throughout his life, are imputed to you. That goes to your bank account, so to speak. And the debt that you could never pay, not only that the millions that you owe, but the millions that you would have to pay to get into heaven, that's a crass way to put it, but that's one way to put it, that is transferred to Christ, who then paid it. Wait, did I mess up that? He paid it for you. I don't know how I said it, but I might as well switch that accidentally. All right, did I lose you all on this? Everybody understanding, following? If I lost you on my circles and drawing, atonement, Christ died for your sin. And then he gave you his righteousness. That's big picture. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And so that's where the verse, uh, Christ, he became sin who knew no sin. What was the purpose of that? Remember the rest of the verse? So that, I think I might be mixing up two verses, but I think it's so that we might become the righteousness of God or that he might bring many sons to glory. And I can't remember which it is. But either way, the idea is he did that so that you would be his, be God's, be righteous in God's sight. So really what we're just talking about is your justification and the atonement. 
And along with this, another result of this cross, in addition to everything he's done for you, you know, if you want to put a big cross here to explain how this takes place, um, he also defeats the evil rulers and authorities and all their evil views, all the idolatry, really the entire old world order of sin and fallenness. And he puts them to open, open shame by triumphing over them. So notice that in him at the very end of 15. So when you read, uh, does anyone's version say something different than in him? Or does it have a footnote on in him? Through him? Okay. Okay. That gives the instrumental well. Yeah, and so <clears throat> it's technically in the neuter. Now, neuter is used to also refer to Jesus a lot. Like, that's a normal thing in Greek. Neuter can refer to uh, an it or a him. That's a very normal thing in grammar. So it's not like it's wrong either way. Um, but it does seem to be pointing back to the cross, to, to what Jesus did on the cross. That is the way in which he triumphed, which to me that makes more sense. But in the end, it's through Christ and what he did on the cross. So either way, it's I mean, it's not... A huge issue, but I think the cross is the better translation here. All right, any questions on 13 through 15? All right, well, let's move on then. And this is where your first handout is going to come in handy. Well, I don't know which is first in your pile. But the one that says a logical progression for Colossians 2, 16 through 23. And we'll look at the confession chapter later. But first, it should be Colossians 2, 16 through 23, logical progression. Everybody have that? Anybody need a, y'all need copies? Let's see. Right. I think the confession page is on top. So All right, so the idea of this, do you all remember what a logical progression is from last week? I promise this one is way simpler than what we looked at last week. But what, what is a logical progression? Why the indenting? Right, very good. And so you can also see the parallels well. So if it's in the same line, then it's either a parallel thought or a separate thought that is, you know, on the same line of thinking. But anything indented is an offset. It's a subset of that first statement. So you can even read off the logical progression that should just be in the ESV. Um, someone could read 16 and 17. All right. Thank you, Patty. So verse 16, therefore, what is the therefore, therefore? Connecting two thoughts. Good. So what two thoughts are being connected? Right. So immediately what we just talked about, the atonement, justice are being united with Christ, however you want to word it, that is directly feeding into these verses in 16 through 23. So because of your union with Christ, because this is true and you have no legal debt against you, because you only have the righteousness of Christ in your account, even though you don't deserve that, but by grace that's what you have, therefore, then what's the next statement? Yeah, let no one judge you. Let no one pass judgment on you. Now, funnily enough, and this is, you can kind of tell in the English, but it's always easier to tell in the Greek when there's a command because it's a special tense and it looks a special way. But this is a command. So if I commanded you to let no one pass judgment on you, what might you react with? Like, what's your reaction to that command? <laughs> okay. Yeah? And why? Why do you say that? Because I understand why you say it, but why do you say that?
Yeah, and that, that yes, and that's kind of what we're getting into. Uh huh. Well, that's definitely what we're talking about here, and and there's a back and forth going on with that kind of thinking, that trying to correct each other according to something. And so next we'll see what the something is. But if you look at the wording of the command, let no one pass judgment on you. You're being commanded not to let somebody else do something in regard to you. Can you control other people? No. So how do we understand this command then? Because that doesn't mean the command is void. It just means that we're not understanding it right. Yeah, and I think that's the right answer. You can't control if somebody else wants to judge you or try to correct you or say you're wrong, but you can't control whether or not you listen to them. Uh, you can't control whether or not you give them the time of day or affirm that they're right biblically or not. Um, and what we're going to see here is that if somebody, now if somebody, if you're directly disobeying Scripture and someone confronts you about that, that's not what this is talking about. But that's the question. Are they confronting you about something that's in Scripture or something that's not in Scripture? Are they confronting something, confronting you with something that has to do with holiness before Christ or about additional things, about worldly things, about traditions, uh, about regulations? And that's what we're getting into here. So, yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah, well said. And uh, it's not on your confession sheet. It's either paragraph three or four of that chapter of the confession, uh, chapter 20 on liberty of conscience, actually talks about that very thing. It's like you can't use it to try to avoid punishment from church government or civil government. You can't say, oh, well, you're not allowed to pass judgment on me, therefore I don't have to obey the stop sign at the end of the street. No, that's not what this means. Uh, We're talking about something very different. So what are those items which... Paul and Timothy list here. I think so. Yeah, I think it definitely fits under legalism. And let's just talk about these individual items, but I think that's the big picture category. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so what kind of category are we in right now? What kind of category of things? I mean, legalistic things, absolutely, but fine-tune that a little bit more. A lot of Jewish laws, yeah. And especially when you get to, so food and drink, of course, there's the dietary laws of the Old Testament. Um, there's all the, the, the laws about what you can eat, what you can't eat, when you can eat it, all those sorts of things. Uh, and so that's, I think, covering that pretty well. But then the, the, the last three lines there, um, before you see verse 17, it's festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths. Now, this is one of those triads. Paul loves his triads to mention, you know, three things that go together that kind of sum up one idea. And this same triad is listed all throughout the Septuagint, which is the Greek version, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so all through the Old Testament, you see uh, this festival, new moon, Sabbath. It's this kind of category of festival keeping, of obeying the ceremonial law. That's what we're talking about here. All right, questions or comments from y'all on 16? All right, I'll ask another question about the food and drink. Does that only apply to Jewish error, though? We see a lot of Jewish notes in here, but it's only Jewish notes. Can you think in New Testament where eating and drinking... There's a whole debate about it that has nothing to do with, well, not nothing to do with, but it's not related to Jewish thought necessarily. Right. Yeah, and so it seems very Jewish, but at the same time, it covers things that aren't Jewish, too. So a lot of Hellenistic, a lot of Greek thought is being rebuked in this as well. 
Um, so these categories, I don't think we should try to like dig into food and talk about, try to list every single thing that it could be. The big picture, you need to recognize that this is referring to anything that is being added or anything from the Old Testament that should have been fulfilled in Christ that they are trying to make you follow. They being some heretic or false teacher or someone who's just misguided. Uh, so it can cover a lot of things, and I don't think we have to nail it down to one specific thing with each word. Uh, there's a big picture. Old Testament law, uh, new things being added. Don't let people pass judgment on you in these things. And then verse 17, it's a subset, you see. Um, how does verse 17 describe these things? Why should they not be binding on you as a believer? Why should you not judge one another or let other people judge you in these things? Right. Yeah, so especially, and maybe that's an argument that this is more Jewish things and less Hellenistic things in that verse in 16. Uh, but regardless of how you take that, all those things, any Old Testament law, ceremonial, uh, we need to go over the different types of law in the Old Testament. Does everybody know what's going on here? Okay, maybe we'll just briefly talk about this. So in the Old Testament... You have three types of law. So you have ceremonial, civil, and moral. All right. What is a moral law? <laughs> yes. So it's a law given by God that is eternal, eternally binding because it reflects a part of his infinite and eternal character. So the Ten Commandments are his moral law. That's the heart of the moral law. Um, those things cannot change. It can never be okay suddenly to murder. Um, it can never be okay to covet. Those things will never change. They are his eternal moral law that are always reflected in Scripture. Now, what is a civil law in the Old Testament? What would be a civil law? Example, we're just explaining the concept. Yeah, so, I mean, we have civil laws too, right? Whatever the government commands us to do, that's our civil laws. Do the Old Testament civil laws, this is getting into a deep question that some people may possibly even disagree with, does the Old Testament laws about how a nation should function apply directly to the U.S. and how it should function and organize itself? No. Now, some people disagree with that, and that's a whole other thing called theonomy, and we're not getting into that today. But those laws, they passed away, so to speak, with the nation of Israel. When Christ came and the nation had, been, had passed away already, they no longer apply. Now, not that we can't pull useful things from them, not that they aren't a guide for nations. If they would follow them, they would be a good guide. But they're not binding in the same way because we're not a theocratic nation. We're a spiritual body, the church. So those laws have passed away. Ceremonial is similar but just slightly different. So what would be a ceremonial law in the Old Testament? Yeah. Right. And so, yeah, food laws, ceremonial laws, cleansing laws, purification laws. What has happened to these things? Are they still binding? What was their purpose? Right, to point forward to Christ. They were never meant to be in and of themselves the full reality. They were never the full picture. Going to the temple and offering sacrifice, that was never the full picture. What It was always meant to point you forward to the true sacrifice, to Christ who would actually uh, shed his blood and his blood would actually be sufficient as opposed to all those lambs and oxes and things that they offered him again and again, year after year after year, and sin was never truly paid for by them. It was just a picture, a placeholder, a sign pointing you forward. Um, and what's the word used to describe those things? What was that? Shadow. Shadow. Need to keep Logan in here to be my designated board cleaner. Um, yeah. So there is shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to who? 
Christ. And so next we need to figure out what does that mean? What is the substance that belongs to Christ? What does that mean? Because there are some options there. But when we think about history, okay, so you know, creation on cross, uh, Christ comes and uh, the end of the world, last judgment, glory begins fully. Um, all these Old Testament laws that were given, you know, of Sinai is here and march on. It's almost like the Christ casts a shadow all the way back into the Old Testament, even though he hadn't come yet. But his person cast that shadow back through those laws, just like forward. Well, uh, forward it goes. Not a shadow forward. The light has come here and the light that's here is what casts the shadow back. Does that make sense? I don't know. Don't get hung up on that. Uh, that's just me thinking out loud. All right. But the shadow. So they weren't the fullness. They were never meant to be the full realities. They always pointed forward to Christ, who is the substance. Now, what does it mean that Christ is the substance? Give me some options here. In the Greek, I'll just go ahead and tell you substance there just says body, soma, body. Yes, so the, the wholeness of Christ's body. So you're absolutely right in what you're saying. Then what is the body specifically? Is it, uh, okay, so one option is just that it's Christ's actual physical body. Okay, that's one possibility. Uh, what are other options? Just thinking biblically about what the body is. But Carol, you're absolutely right. This is what casts the shadow back. But now the question is, what is it that casts the shadow just think biblically about body. What else could body refer to in the New Testament? The church, good. Okay. Anything else you can think of? Maybe this is where I just look at the verse some more. Uh, these things are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So using this language, this shadow to true, full reality, does Christ's physical, actual body, you feel like, fit here? Is it okay to give an answer, yes or no? Or you're not sure? Okay. Good. Hang on to that for one second. How about church? I think Dave's response fits here well, too, saying I think there's still something missing in this. Now, throughout the New Testament, body does refer to church a lot. Soma, the body of church, which is Christ's body, that's not a bad connection to make. But I think Dave's onto the right thing here, which is the third option. And I don't know, you might be able to come up with more, but these are the three that are definitely uh, possible in the text. And that is that, I'm just going to put three over here. That Christ is the full reality. So the fullness of his atonement, of the salvation that he has worked on your account, the full promises that have come with Christ, the full promises that were fulfilled in Christ. He is the full reality. There's nothing else, no one else we're waiting on. Of course, we're waiting on him to come back, but that's we're not waiting on some grander revelation of more truth or something like that. We have seen the fullness in Christ as the true reality. And that's why, honestly, I think that's the only thing that fits the verse here. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the body belongs to Christ. That means he is the fullness of it. Everything that it was meant to point to is here, period. And it's full in the full eschaton, the full revelation of Christ. Um, questions, comments on that? Right. Yeah, I think you're absolutely. I think the commentators did well here. They're they're giving you the shortcut, so to speak. Uh, they're telling you what body refers to, and I think they're absolutely correct. Um, so yeah, the substance belongs to Christ. All right. Any questions on sixteen and seventeen? All right. Let's read eighteen and nineteen. If someone could read that, please. 
Thank you, Jane. And in a second, we're going to see another use of body. Then we're going to have to decide, is this the same use or is this a different use? Uh, but we see another command. What's the command? Right, and it kind of has the same problem if you don't read it carefully like the previous one did. Well, how do you control what other people do? Um, well, it's you're not letting uh, their judgment or their, well, really bad judgment um, affect what you believe. Uh, if you're holding fast to the truth and you know that um, if you're following Scripture and you're not following things that you're not supposed to follow, then you're following this command. Uh, it's kind of tricky for us to understand, but that's how it works. Um, so do not let anyone disqualify you. Now, if someone's trying to disqualify you, what do you think that means? What, are, what do they think about you? The prod, defrauding you of your prize. Okay, that has a slightly different connotation. Um, yeah. So that's like don't let people mislead you almost is what that sounds like to my mind. Yeah, so don't let people mislead you. Okay, so in the ESV, how, what's another way you could take that? What is someone else thinking about you if they're saying, oh, man, he does that and he's not holding to this? Yeah. 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 Well said. Well said. Yeah, I think most often we see this kind of played out by, by people, and they may not say it, but they're thinking, well, you're not a real Christian unless you X, Y, Z. Uh, you're not really a Christian because you do X, Y, and Z, uh, that kind of thinking. And, and that falls under what, what Dave just said. Um, all right, good. Now, what are the, th- this new list of things? So it's very similar. It kind of parallels what we've already done in 16 and 17. What are these uh, items being listed? No one wants to say asceticism, do they? Right. Yeah, if it's ascend to a higher plane, a higher level of Christian, or to earn your salvation, you must do X, Y, and Z, uh, deprive yourself, deny yourself, go on and on. Which, of course, denying ourselves is a good thing if you do it the right way, the way Scripture says to. All right, what else? Yeah. So worship of angels... Uh, and then that's very closely connected with going on in detail about visions. So some uh, some kind of spiritual encounter, spiritual uh, feelings and, and uh, uh, events in your life. If you're not having these. So this is seems to be hitting more on Hellenistic kind of stuff that would have been going around. Uh, around. Or Gnosticism, possibly some early Docetism kind of ideas as well. A lot more Greco-Roman, ancient Near East stuff versus... Jewish heresy, although some of this, like the worship of angels, uh, that was not something unheard of as a Jewish error. Uh, so that's not something that was out of line for being Jewish, too. So, again, it's not for sure just Hellenistic stuff. Could be some Jewish hits here as well, so to speak. But um, either way, a lot of stuff being added to uh, what you're supposed to be doing, according to some. I love the description at the end. So going on in details about visions and what's that little subset describing. Really, I think all three of those bad ideas. Yeah. Puffed up without reason. You don't want to be without reason in Scripture. That's the same as being called a fool, essentially. And being a fool in Scripture is not a good thing. It's even worse than in our day when you're called a fool. Um, So without reason by the sensuous mind. So the mind just running amok, running crazy. Uh, running into emotionalism and all kinds of things, bad ideas, bad philosophy. I think all that's summed up here. All right, any other comments on 18? Mm-hmm. 
Ja. 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 All right, verse 19. So this is another item, remember, it's paralleling those bad things we just talked about. But I'd say it's the, the biggest of them. <laughs> it's almost a summary one. You're, so you're trying to add all these things, and then there's something you're not doing if you're doing all these things. It would come along with the territory. Right. So it goes along with it. It's another element. It's like the fourth one, but it's the worst one because, well, if you're doing these things, then the other thing that you're also doing is you're not holding fast to Christ. And so if you list that out, that one really punches. Um, You know, you're insisting on asceticism. You're worshiping angels. You're talking about visions and lost in them. But most importantly, you're not holding fast to the head. Do you feel the punch of that when you read through it? It's meant to hit hard. Um, to where if you're engaged in any of these things, if your heart's seeking after any of those types of things, the adding to Scripture, adding to the Christian life, trying to add to your salvation somehow, that one should punch hard. Um, so who is the head? Yeah, so Christ the head, from whom the whole body, uh-oh, we're back to body. What did we say body was before? Yeah, the fullness of the reality of Christ coming. Does that fit the text here? No, I don't think so either. And this is where we get one of those examples that just because one word means something in this verse, that doesn't necessarily mean that two verses later, if the same word is used again, that it means the exact same thing. It may be used in a different way. Yes, exactly. We do that all the time. Um, Yeah, we do that all the time, but we don't consciously think about it. But sometimes when we're reading Scripture... We read through, assign a meaning to a word, read through it, and it's used in a completely different context, even though it's two verses later, but we assign the same meaning to it, not paying attention. So that's where we got to read slow and pay attention and ask, well, what does it mean here? And this is where talking about Christ as the head really gives us the answer very quickly. If we just stop and notice that, then we'll, okay, here are the bodies of the church, even though it wasn't that before. All right, any questions about that? All right. So if you are holding fast to the head as the body, what is happening in verse 19? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, that's a great connection back to everything we've already talked about. Yeah. And then in the rest of 19, moving forward, what's occurring to the church? As a result, if you are holding fast to Christ as the church, what's going on? Yeah. So it's being nourished, knit together. I, I could have put those on uh, parallel lines instead of in one line like that. Either way, it means the same. But uh, through its joints and ligaments. Uh, what are the joints and ligaments? Yeah, I think that could be a part of it for sure. And that I'm not sure there's one, only one right answer to this. I think that's a possibility. Um, some people might just say it's the people of the church faithfully following Christ. That's what knits it together. You say it's love that knits it together. Um, Christ's atonement and what he has done, given to you, that's what knits you together. Uh, the word, that's what knits you and nourishes you together. So I think there's a, actually a lot of right answers here that could all fit. And I'm not prepared to say there's only one of those is right. Um, but all the things that helps us knit, be knit together and nourish us, uh, if it's from the Word and from the Spirit or from a result of that, I think it fits. And then what is the church to be doing at the end of 19? Growing, increasing. And where does that growth come from? Programs? 
Numbers, getting enough numbers through the door. Christ, it comes from God. Grows with the growth that is from God. All right, any other comments or thoughts on this section? 16 through 19. All right, well, let's talk about 20 through 23 and see if we can finish that. So someone could read that, 20 through 23. All right, so now we're kind of back to a whole new idea that really parallels with 16 and 18. So 16 on, 18 on. Now we're 20. We're starting over, so to speak, um, connecting back to everything that's come before it. So there's a big if. If with Christ you died, meaning if you are connected to Christ, if you are united to Christ, if his righteousness has been imputed to you and you stand forgiven before the Father, uh then you have also died to these elemental spirits of the world. So then there's a question. And what's the question? Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, so what's a word or a phrase there in 20 on that second line that's repeated that we've seen before in Colossians? Yes. Right. And do you remember what we said there? That they're demonic. Yeah, demonic forces, powers, rulers over this world. So, again, we're back to that question. It's like with body. Is this talking about the same use of elemental spirits or is this something different? Can that use... Okay, any other thoughts? Anyone want to disagree with Dave? Fine, fine, fine. Uh, no, I, I completely agree. I, some, so, okay, there's three options. Um, one is that this is the Old Testament law or shadows that we were talking about earlier. Uh, I don't think the verses after describe that kind of thing necessarily. Um, well, I mean, we do see some things that refer to Judaism. That's, that's not what I meant. Hold on. Let me think how to say this right. I don't think it's only referring to that. We've also talked about a lot of things that are Hellenistic, um, that are Greek thinking kind of things as well. And it covers a lot more than just Jewish thought. So I just don't really agree with that one. The next is what we talked about, that there's the evil spiritual powers option. But I think it seems to cover a lot more than that. And so it's not that you can't fit that one in. It is possible. It's actually the majority view for this. But I think that we're talking more a big picture thing. Um, so the wording Paul uses, uh, it can also refer to in Greek thought, you know, the base elements in Greek thought. Was it fire? I'm going to mess this up. Fire, wind, water, earth, something like that. Uh, so this phrase can refer to that, uh, that Paul uses in the Greek. And so if you list all that in Greek thought, then you're just talking about everything in the created world. And so uh, I take this to be kind of covering um, everything in the old world order. So it would include those demonic rulers and beings, but it would also include these old traditions, these old uh, regulations, even old fulfilled regulations that no longer apply could fall under this. Uh, human tradition, Greek thought, Greek philosophy, civil rulers, all those things would fall under this. So I think it's kind of everything in the unredeemed order that still is around. Does that make sense? So I think it's a lot broader than just rulers and authorities. I think it's kind of covering everything that is old and fallen. Um, and when you go through the list that Paul gives and the statements that he makes, I think it covers everything. And so that, that's why I take that view. Anyone want to disagree or quibble, or did I lose you on that? 
Yeah. I think so. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, and you see things that are actually kind of close to that. Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. Uh, human precepts and teachings. And then it doesn't even have to be things that make no sense. What does verse 23 say about some of these things? Yeah, they may sound good. A lot of people may agree with it. Um, but what are the actual uses of them after that statement in 23? Yeah, there's really no value. There's nothing here about making you holy. It's nothing here about making you more Christ-like. It's nothing here about you being able to earn your way into glory. It promotes self-made religion, not the true religion. It promotes asceticism. Again, we've already talked about that's not a good option. It devotes, uh some people would apply it to severity of the body beating yourself, masochism, uh, to try to earn a God's favor. Okay, obviously that's very wrong. Um, and ultimately, the final statement is the strongest. <coughs> What's the real problem with all these things that appear wise to the world at some time or another? Yeah. Yeah. And notice this is kind of a lesser to greater thing. If they can't even stop the indulgence of the flesh, what are they definitely incapable of doing? If they can't even keep you from sinning, what is a more important thing that it's not going to do? It's definitely not going to save you when you have sinned. Uh, so not only does it not stop the sin, but it can't help you <laughs> the more severe need for the sin you've already committed. So it's completely worthless in the end. Um, other thoughts or comments on this section? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, all these, uh, those three phrases under 21, they all do have a, a, some kind of correlation back to Old Testament thought. So handle, that's used in the Septuagint. It refers to anything that you would touch that would make you unclean. Um, the touch word, ironically, we talk about touch with handle, but then touch, it, it's used in Exodus when the Israelites are gathered around Sinai and God specifically says, do not let anyone come and touch the holy mountain. They will surely die. And not only that, they'll bring judgment on the whole people. So this is very much this idea of holiness, of trying to add things like that, like what Dave was just saying. It, it's going along with that. And then taste gives the best example of that. So uh, I don't think Paul's quoting this or anything, but in Second Maccabees, which is just a extra biblical, it's not canon, just this writing um, from sometime before Christ. There's a martyr who refused to eat pork in that story. Uh, because it was unlawful to taste. So taste is that same kind of word being used there. So a lot that has to do with cleanliness, uh, spiritual cleanness in the Old Testament in 21. And then as you go into 23, it seems to be a lot more Hellenistic kind of stuff. So it's like the old stuff that you would try to carry over and the new stuff you would try to add. Both fail. Big picture. Both fail. All right. Any other thoughts or comments on the verses? If not, we'll close by looking at the confession sheet. And that's why a lot of the time these human regulations, human ideas, they may look great. But if they don't actually follow the word, if it's not sticking to the basic principles, the main thing of the gospel, chances are it might be adding to it. And so you've got to watch out and be careful for things like that. Uh-huh. I think it covers that. I think that's the main idea of it. But it could also include like severe fasting and stuff like that. So not necessarily that you have to be whipping or beating yourself, but it definitely covers that. Uh, so just anything where you have to do this to yourself to prove that you love God or something, that's wrong. Um, now, we can fast in a right way today. Um, some people do fast, uh, but that's not what that's talking about. This is the extreme version. Any extreme version. All right, so Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 20 of Christian Liberty of Conscience.
So there's four paragraphs in this chapter. Uh, we're just going to look at the first two. Um, and again, it's that logical progression with the subsets of ideas to help you follow. Because if there's one thing about the confession, that is if you just read straight through, it's real easy to get lost on what line you're on and what you're talking about. Um, so hopefully this order helps you follow it. So if someone could read, uh, you see down, it's kind of this, mm, about halfway through paragraph one, and everlasting damnation, semicolon, does someone see that? Would someone be willing to read to that point? So about half of paragraph one. So we have freedom from these things, list those three. Uh, we're delivered from the evil world, bondage to Satan, dominion of sin. All those other things below that are things that are under that dominion of sin category, um, these things that we have been delivered from. Um, so you just see how it's flowing there. All right, and then if someone could finish out the rest of the paragraph. So it's kind of like the first half of that is things that we're freed from. Like So all the things people want to add, those are the things we've been freed from. And that's what that section in Colossians we looked at is talking about. You're free from these things. Why would you want to go back to them? And then the second half of the paragraph is why would you want to go back in time to the Old Testament stuff when you have a fuller, richer, greater access and those things have been fulfilled? They're done away with. They're gone. They're, you, have a more, you have a better, more realized grace. Um, one that is more visible and easily understood than what was before. So don't go back. Uh, and then if someone could read paragraph 2, and then I'll close this in prayer after that. Yeah, and that just talks about conscience and the role it plays in this whole conversation. So we don't have time to really talk about it more. But I encourage you to look over that paragraph and just think through some of the things it talks about. Uh, let me close this in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your word. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have freed us both from the shadow of things of the Old Testament, uh, but also the duty to add anything uh, to the salvation that you have wrought because it is a perfect and full salvation, full of grace and full of mercy. and There's nothing we need to bring to it. It is already perfect the way it is. So, Lord, help us to rest in that. Help us to continue to seek to feed off of your word and what it says and not what just mankind tells us to add or to take away. Help us to trust in the sufficiency of your word and the sufficiency of your grace. And even as we go to worship, help us to do that uh, this morning. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.